0: Welcome to Plants and Our Health. I'm Helena. I'm Tom. And I'm Aaron. Who did you talk to this week, Aaron? Our guest this week is Professor Nigel Maxted, who's Professor of Plant Genetic Conservation at the University of Birmingham. And as our theme is still Plants on Our Plates, this is apt as Nigel looks at the genetics of crop wild relatives and land races and how this genetic information can be used for conservation. Awesome. That sounds great. Let's jump in. So, thanks for coming onto the podcast. And would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. So, I'm Professor Nigel Maxted from the University of Birmingham. Um, and I'm Professor of Plant Genetic Conservation. So, that means conservation but at the genetic level so if you think of the three levels of biodiversity you have ecosystems or habitats species and genetic diversity so I focus on conserving the broad range of diversity within species and I, I guess most of my professional career has been associated with conserving species which are related to agriculture so either the traditional varieties uh, which we call land races or crop wild relatives, the wild species which are closely related to crops and which the crops were originally domesticated from.
0: Um, Which is perfect because the focus of today's chat is crop wild relatives and land races, as you say, and we're looking at how plants in those forms are able to support humans and also how crop wild relatives as an idea might be able to help people connect with plants and, you know, associate their food as growing things out in the wild. Yep. And your conservation focus, it's it's at the genetic level. So do you want to maybe explain just a little bit how that, that focus makes it different and what genetic conservation is based
1: in? Okay. So so if you're if you're looking at um species conservation and say you're trying you have a, a protected area um and you're conserving species within that area, then what you're looking for really is presence or absence of those species. But the focus is not on the genetic diversity within those species, whereas our focus is on conserving genetic diversity. So, for instance, we may have a particular species present in a particular protected area, and it may have unique genetic diversity. So, in other words, we may want to conserve the same species in lots of different locations, particularly because they have different genetic diversity in each of those locations. Genetic conservation is, well, in my context, in terms of agro-biodiversity, is often linked to utilisation. So in terms of conserving the species, what we're trying to do is conserve genetic diversity uh, for use. So a good example would be in the context of climate change. So the, the current array of uh, crop varieties we have, uh, because of climate change, are not going to be suitable in 10 or 20 years' time we're going to have to have uh, varieties that are more resilient to drought, uh, heat stress, etc. and those alleles or those traits uh, are not found in the present crop diversity. So we have to look for that in the wild relatives. And um, they may they may not be in every single population of each wild relative. So that's why we have to conserve lots of populations and in the hope that at least one or two of them have traits that can be used and transferred to the crop to provide climate change resilience for future crops so we can maintain food production. And with an increasing population, it's even more important because obviously we not only have to maintain production, but we have to increase production. And FAO have calculated we need to increase production by about 60% globally. But if you live in a a developing country, say in Africa, then often there they're trying to double the amount of uh, food production so these crop, using crop-wild relatives in the breeding programmes of African crops will be very important to uh, stop malnourishment and uh, hunger, basically.
0: So these crop-wild relatives, they're... Actually, can you explain sort of the difference between crop-wild relatives and land races? Because I feel like that's not a term that I hear as much.
1: Yes, OK. So crop-wild relative is a wild species, like any other wild species of plant but they just happen to be closely related to crops. So they're the species that the crop was either closely related to or domesticated from. And the reason they have value still is because we can still transfer traits relatively easily from those species into the crop. Because you can imagine when you first domesticate a crop, you're not conserving or domesticating the whole genetic diversity. You're just domesticating one population or a few individuals. Uh, Whereas a landrace, a landrace is a traditional form of a crop which is maintained by uh, local traditional farmers and they, they maintain it by seed saving. So they save a few seeds each year and use that for seed corn in subsequent years. So there's a very close relationship between the local environment and the seed that they're growing because it's been grown in that same location for a very long time period. So a good example in Scotland would be beer barley grown on either the Western Isles or on Orkney and Shetland. Uh, so there there you have a material of barley that's been grown in that location for centuries, and it's very well attuned to that uh, location, where if you try and grow modern high-yielding varieties of barley in the same location, they don't do quite so well, because you can imagine in, say, the Outer Hebrides, you get a lot of salt and wind damage, which modern High yielding barley varieties can't cope with, whereas this old traditional beer barley can.
0: And these land races, similar to crop wild relatives, they can also have useful genetic resources and they're still, in a breeding sense, compatible with our traditional crops.
1: Yes. So, sorry, I should have made that point. So, if you're looking at um, the most diversity, it would be found in a wild relative because it's not, not gone through what we call the genetic bottleneck of domestication. Uh, So you lose a lot of variation when you take plants into domestication. Uh, Then if you look at uh, land races, uh, they're they're highly genetic diverse. If you look at a field of, say, beer barley, um, it'll be different heights and it'll be flowering and uh, the seeds will be ripening at different rates in the field. Whereas if you compare that to a high-yielding variety, then every single plant is exactly the same height. It has exactly the same resistance to disease and pests um, and is harvested on exactly the same day, which are characteristics that most farmers want. So in other words, they're, they're homozygous. Most modern high yielding varieties are homozygous. They have no genetic variation at all. So they're completely hopeless in terms of breeding future crops. So you have to have these old traditional varieties or wild relatives to get the genetic diversity you need to breed modern crops.
0: So you you made a good point there that these Crops that we're used to—we're kind of used to seeing our food looking like these certain things and these certain ways. But the the wild relatives—they can vary quite a lot. Yes. Do you have any sort of fun or interesting examples, maybe of ones that you've come across of, you know, a relative of a of a really common food that we would? I've I've seen it some tomatoes that are extremely small or things which are different colors and and such.
1: Yes. So I think one of the, um, the most distinct ones are the wild relatives of wheat. And another example, good example of a, one that was, which I found actually, a new species. I was collecting in Turkey and found this new species of sweet pea wild relative. So if you look at the crop sweet peas, you can have virtually any color but yellow. Um, And so I was traveling, this was in 1987, I was traveling along the the southern coast of Turkey and found this, what turned out to be a new species, and it had yellow flowers. So um, we were actually, the breeders were able to take this and cross it with the cultivated sweet pea. And so now we can have uh, yellow varieties of sweet pea, which were never possible before. So you can see how there you have a very valuable trait because growers like to grow yellow sweet peas, but was never available before that cross was made. And I would also add that that particular species was only found in one place, one population, and that population has been uh, subsequently decimated. So first of all, by the original location where the whole population was located, being dug out, believe it or not, to build a new police station. Um, And then the few, few remaining plants that were left were virtually killed off um, in 2010 by the widening of the main road that runs along the south coast of Turkey. So um, when I went to, to the original, when I first found it, we had about 50,000 plants. When I went back and they would built the police station, it went down to about 5,000. And when I last went two years ago, I could only find 15, 15 plants left. So it My just goodness. goes to show how these, this very important diversity is being lost Um, in this place will will probably go extinct now in that particular case i when i when i found it i did collect a lot of seeds so we have material in the gene bank and potentially we could have restoration of the populations but you can see that how the process is happening over and over again with the loss of diversity because of man's mismanagement of the ecosystem
0: Mm -hmm. and seed banks and collecting seed is is one of the ways that you can conserve the genetic diversity if you if you collect them from specific populations that you're interested in?
1: Yes, you can. Um, It's a very easy way. It's relatively cheap and simple to collect seed if it's what they call an orthodox species. So an orthodox species means you can actually put it in a deep freeze without actually killing it. The only problem with that kind of conservation is it freezes evolution. In other words, um, if if you conserve species in the wild, say in a protected area, then they carry on evolving with the pests and diseases. Whereas, obviously, if you put them in a deep freeze, they can't continue evolving.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things you've been looking at recently, isn't it? To try and identify uh, certain important areas where you can protect crops and their, their wild relatives rather out in the wild.
1: Yeah. So we've been looking at various levels. We published a major paper in Nature a couple of years ago, which looked at the top 150 sites globally to conserve the major crop wild relatives associated with the major crops. Um, And we came up with these 150 sites, and now we're actually trying to set up a network of these sites to do practical in-situ conservation of these populations. Um, The only problem is that a lot of these populations are found in some of the poorer countries of the world. Interestingly, the country which has the highest concentration per unit area of crop wild relatives is Syria. So you can imagine at the moment trying to do active conservation in situ in Syria is rather difficult.
0: Yeah, and is it mostly associated with how much genetic diversity the area has um, that leads you to kind of identify an area as important, or are there other metrics that come into No,
1: into in, this, in this particular case, how we're assessing these sites is the concentration of different species. So we, we want to uh, look at genetic diversity but we also have a global list of the top priority crop wild relatives, the 1,392 species which are closely related to the major crops of the world. But what we do is rather than just say, right, we've got one site with that particular species, is, we make sure that every single species that we're putting in the in situ network is found in five separate sites. And we're assuming it's found in five separate sites around the world. Then we have a sample, at least, of some genetic diversity. And not only are we doing that at the global level, we're doing it in Europe and we're doing it within the UK.
0: And when you have identified an area as important and one that you'd like to conserve, do you have to kind of find a way to formally protect it? Is that what in situ conservation looks like?
1: Yes, it is. But usually what happens is it's it would be very expensive, obviously, if you find a, a particular population and want to set up a new protected area, uh, because you have to go through all the legislation, etc., to protect the site. So usually what we're doing initially, at least, is to set up sites in existing protected areas. In the UK, a good example here would be down on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall. So we identified that as one of the prime sites within the UK to conserve crop wild relatives. And that is already being actively conserved by Natural England and the Natural Trust. Uh, so it's been given priority in terms of conservation of the lizard to maintain uh, populations of those species within the lizard.
0: Yeah. So then once these areas um, and this network has kind of been identified, Is it an aim then to make this information available to people who would be interested in accessing the plant genetic resources?
1: Yes, ideally. The end point in terms of genetic conservation is use in terms of breeding programmes most often. And so we'd like to try and assess which traits are present in which populations. And then if you like, advertise them to the breeders. So if a breeder is looking for, say, drought resistance or heat tolerance, then we can tell tell them, uh, he or she, which populations have those traits, and they can use those, particularly in their breeding programs.
0: So it's almost like, I can imagine, a, a magazine for for what would you like your crops to have? Would you like them to have drought resistance? Would you like them to have uh, pest resistance? And you're able to point them in the right direction?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, basically, the way it works at the moment, it's a, it's a website on the internet. But yes, it works exactly the same as you're yeah. saying, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, something that I, I saw in one of your papers, I think it was back in 2017, was that even when people might want to use plant genetic resources, whether it's people who are plant breeders or or farmers, there are a number of barriers which can make it difficult. As you were saying, you know, it can take a long time to legislate to do things and access new resources, or sometimes they're just not made aware. Yep. In In which way are you perhaps trying to tackle these barriers so that Plant genetic resources are a bit more accessible in the future?
1: So, basically, I, I guess I started off as a scientist. And I, as the years have passed, I've become much more involved in policy, not because of a deliberate choice, but because I got so frustrated in terms of having conserv- You know, I make recommendations for conservation and they weren't implemented. So, increasingly, um, I find myself in a position of trying to either revise or work with governments to change legislation or put legislation in place, which enables the the active conservation of these important populations, but also making the, their use um, in a fair and equitable way as easy as possible. Historically, I think there was something called common heritage. So that meant that everyone had the right to use any genetic materials uh, they liked. And then post the Convention on Biological Diversity, we had this thing called national sovereignty. So national sovereignty means that each government of the country has the right to um, either exploit that resource themselves, or they can they can allow someone else to exploit it. But if they do, someone else exploits it, then they have to give some benefit back to the host country where they got the materials. So that's increasingly uh, what we do. So that uh, has been a, um, a disbenefit because it's taken a time. To get the legislation in place and to get it working well, and I, I would uh, not sit here and say that uh, it's working perfectly now, but that's that's the goal, and that's what that's what we're aiming to do in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean it's always on, an ongoing and an evolving yes. thing.
1: For instance, one good example, which I'm very pleased about, is I don't know you're probably familiar with the new agriculture bill, but one of the clauses in the agricultural bill says that. Uh, Farmers potentially will be either paid a subsidy or given some benefit if they maintain either traditional land races or crop wild relatives on their land. And I was partially responsible for inserting that text in the bill, but it's, it's made a huge change because now it's it's not that any farmer who's doing active conservation of this material. Um, is going to see some real benefit rather than just providing a public good and and having no personal benefit to themselves. So I think it'll change the game. It'll become much more important. And with with climate change, we actually need to make these changes because unless we have this material available, then we we have no way of mitigating the impact of climate change in the future, which actually is happening already.
0: Yeah, it's an extremely urgent issue, for sure. Another barrier that I saw in the paper was they cited lack of education and even public awareness of what crop wild relatives are. Yes. What's the scope just now for public understanding of it?
1: Yes, it's it's, it's amazing how things have changed in my professional life. I've been working about 30 years on this subject professionally. And when I first started, I would go and talk to people about crop wild relatives. And uh, certainly if I talked to protected area managers, they heard the word crop and then they'd immediately turn off and say, no, no, we're not interested in conserving crops. We deal with wild species found in nature. And so yeah. I'd have to explain. And it, they just went away puzzled, sort of scratching their head. And I, I think now the situation has changed. Many protected areas now are having to justify why. Why spend so much money on conserving uh, this, this, the resources within a protected area? What's the benefit? Well, we, we all know there's a, there's a good benefit because I can walk there and enjoy my Sunday walk or whatever. But we can also show now this additional benefit because we have the conservation of these crop wild relatives and land races within those protected areas. So we have a direct association between those protected sites and the food that we eat every day. Um, and if we didn't have that, that active conservation, then the food would become less and less, even here in the UK. Um, and I think now we, we don't, you know, people here, protected area community, hear the word crop wild relative, and they respond quite differently to how they responded 20 years ago. So it's it's taken a long time, but I think we, we've got there finally. And is there some place that you'd really like to see it going in the future? Well, I think in terms of promoting this in situ, global in situ network. So as I said, it, it's related to the top Um, 1,392 species of crop wild relative, which are relatives of the top 190 crops. I mean, this will make a significant, if we can conserve those and make sure the material is used in breeding programs, it'll make a really significant difference in terms of uh, food security for the world. So I don't think we can underestimate how important it is the establishment of this network uh, for the whole of mankind's future.
0: Yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck with this project. It sounds like
1: a a very noble one. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. I should I should also add that I'm I'm lucky. I really enjoy my work. I think it's important, but it it's it's really I've really been very lucky at having a career which has taken me all over the world, um, and really do uh, allowing me to do something I feel is really worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what we all hope for, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming to chat with me. I'm sure everyone will have found this extremely interesting. I've learned a lot about plant conservation and as someone who even studied a bit of this stuff. So, yeah, thank you very much. No, thank you for the invitation. And if anyone would like to ask you anything that you've been chatting about today, is there a kind of best way to do that?
1: Yes, if you, I'm at the University of Birmingham. If you look up my name on the website, you'll see my email address And you're welcome to contact me and ask me any questions associated with the conservation and use of land races and crop wild relatives. Okay, so thanks again. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode
0: of Plants and Our Health. If you'd like to find out more about crop wild relatives or Nigel's research, you can reach him by email at n.maxted at bham.ac.uk across the next two episodes as of next friday we'll be exploring another new theme plants as our medicines with two more fascinating guests so make sure you come back for the first of those next friday this episode of plants in our health was produced by aaron Devere and brought to you by not another science podcast from the edinburgh university science magazine where we explore fascinating themes and ideas talk to awesome researchers about their work and find out about the science being done right here in edinburgh If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USci. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also shoot us an email at usci.podcast.gmail.com, and you can see the show notes and leaf through the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. Not Another Science Podcast is hosted by me, Helena Cornu, and my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. The podcast manager is Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by YouSite chief editor, Apple Chu. And the terrific episode art for this series was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep it leafy.